0: let's go to Romans chapter 12. We're going to finish up our overview of Romans today, and we're going to to look at chapter 12 through the end of the book, chapter 16. As we've been on this journey, we've seen the overarching theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God, and how that righteousness is made available to both Jews and Gentiles alike. And the whole concept is both Jews and Gentiles, in and of ourselves, are dominated by sin and is under the wrath of God because of that sin. The Jews have no advantage over the Gentiles. The Gentiles have no advantage over the Jews. We are all in need of God's salvation, we are all in need of God's justification. And that's what the heart of the book is about, is how the gospel is made available to all, regardless if you came from uh, a Jewish background or a Roman background or a Greek background, then the gospel is for all. And there is no uh, prejudice with God. There is no favoritism with God. Uh, The salvation message is available to all. And it's in the context of this body of believers called the church, the called out ones that have now come to this Unifying faith. And the question of of this unifying faith is how do Jews who came from a radically different background, culturally, religiously, exist within unity with these Gentiles who come from a culturally, religiously different background? And how does one accept the other? And how do they live together and worship together? So the first uh, three chapters, we saw the need for salvation that. Uh, the sin out in the world. Uh, People are lost and hopeless uh, without Christ. But on the other hand, trying to achieve righteousness through our own works or through our own self-efforts or law keeping, we fall short in that area as well. But the gospel shows us that through Jesus, righteousness apart from the law is revealed through Jesus Christ. And then chapter 4 showed us how Abraham, who was not circumcised, received righteousness by his faith. And that's the pattern for both Jews and Gentiles, how we receive the righteousness of God by faith. Chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 talk about what that righteousness looks like as it is uh, made available to us by the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. How we die to our old nature and we've risen to Christ with our new nature and how we live and walk in the Holy Spirit. But chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul is dealing with this issue of since, you know, Jew and Gentile promises both to God, and many Jews who were a part of the covenant God had with his people, they were missing out on it. So the question 9, 10, and 11 deals with is, is God unfaithful to his word to Israel? Because Israel has been unfaithful to him, and the answer was absolutely not. That God was currently fulfilling his promises to Israel by the preaching of the gospel. And there was a remnant of uh, faithful Jews that had believed the gospel, who which Paul was a part of. So God was not unfaithful to his promises. Israel, God was faithful to his promises to Israel through the salvation of the remnant. And it was through the hardness of Israel that the Gentiles came in. And when the Gentiles come in, it would be through jealousy that would provoke many in Israel to turn to Christ. And uh, so we saw the salvation of Israel. Well, now that Paul has laid this marvelous foundation of the need for salvation, uh, the need for justification, how justification comes, what it looks like in the life of the believer, how God is faithful to all of his people. Now we're going to get down into the practical issues from chapters 12 through 16 and the practical issues of how does this righteousness work within the confines of Christian community. How does it work within the confines of Jew and Gentiles living and worshiping together with their differences? How does it look in the confines of how Christians relate to the world around them? So we get into a lot of the practical outworkings of this righteousness of God in verses, in chapters 12 through 16. So let's look on our paper. Uh, chapter 12, 1 through 15, verse 13, is kind of the heart of Paul's... Um, Teaching here on this subject of the practical outworking of righteousness. Chapter 12 begins with a call really to nonconformity to the society around us, uh, motivated by God's mercy, uh, and finds the expression through a transformed life. Basically, through this working of the Holy Spirit, we are to be different than those around us. There's to be a distinction in our lives. So he tells us here at the bottom of page 59, the preceding preceding mercies of God call us to service based on a renewed mind by the Holy Spirit that can determine what pleases God. So he tells us here, and if we look in the scripture in Romans chapter 12, these are familiar verses to us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy, how God is, he's just showed God's mercy. He's concluded them all under sin that God may have mercy on all. And he says, because of this mercy, because God has showed us mercy and saved us and gave us righteousness and gave us his justification, in view of this mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Then he says in verse 2 Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So now he's drawing a distinction between the believers in the world and those non believers in the world. How we are to live a transformed life how our minds are to be renewed. Now, if you think about it, if, if you grew up as a Jewish person under the law in the Jewish culture and society, you think a certain way. You think like a Jewish person who grew up in a Jewish society. On the other hand, if you grew up in a pagan world and in a totally different culture, you think like you were brought up. You think like the culture around you unless you are taught differently. And Paul says the key to living as a living as a living sacrifice is not to be conformed to this world, not to be conformed to this age, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the renewing of our mind takes place through the Holy Spirit. He talked about that in Romans chapter 8. He talked about the mind that is set on the things of the Spirit produces the things of the Spirit. The mind set on the things of the flesh produces the things of the of the flesh. So we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. He says, Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will. What God's will is, is good, pleasing, and perfect will. Uh, then we know that verses 3 through 8 offer the basic theological grounding for what is to follow in verses 9 through 21. In verse number 3, he says, For by the grace given me, I say to everyone, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. But rather, think of yourself with sober judgment, and according with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others." Then he talks about each one has a different gift, but he's again appealing to the concept of we're all different people. We've all come from different backgrounds, but now even though we're many different people and we all have different gifts and we all have different callings and functions, we are a part of one body. And he says the cure to to the division in the body is, first of all, don't think of yourselves in a more high estimation than you are, but to think of yourself accordance to the faith that God has given you. Basically that I was a sinner in need of a savior just like everybody else. And again, he's appealing in verse number 12 to the mercies of God. And if not, but through the mercy of God, I would still be who I was, but I'm not who I was, but it's not because of me. Therefore, I don't have a reason to puff myself up. I don't have a reason to think I'm better than somebody else because I was saved by grace through God's mercy just like everybody else was saved by grace through God's mercy. And I see myself not as better than anybody else, but I see myself as equal with everybody else that if not by the grace and the mercy of God, I would not be where I am. And that's the basis for Christian fellowship. We appeal to the mercies, of God. So that's kind of the, the theological undertone for the rest of what he's getting ready to say, that we should think of ourselves as people undeserving of mercy, but we're given mercy through Jesus. And then he calls us in verses 9 through 21 to love in action. What does is, what is a living sacrifice look like? What does a life transformed by the renewing of our minds look like? What is a life by the Spirit look like? What does it look like when we esteem others ahead of ourselves? What does it look like when we do not think of ourselves as better than other people, but we're submitting to the mercy of God? Well, here's what it looks like. And the overflowing, I mean, just just the overflowing message of Romans chapter 12 is that we are to be called to be a people of love and peace. That's who we're called to be as the body of Christ, saved by the grace and the mercy of God. We are to be Christians. We are to be Christians who are people of love and peace. Um, Even when we're persecuted, even when we're mistreated, even when we are cursed and hated, we must be people of love and peace. He tells us here. He says some words in the verses we're getting ready to read. He tells us to to be patient in affliction or be patient in tribulation. He tells us to bless our enemies. He tells us to repay no one evil for evil. We're told to feed and give drink to our enemies. Now, this is a radical shift of life for them, and it's a radical shift of life for us because we do not think this way. Our culture does not think this way. Even many times our religion does not think this way. Our our values do not think this way. But the scripture encourages us that when we have a renewed mind, when we're transformed by the mercies of God, when we are not esteeming ourselves better than others and we're not having a more high of an estimation than we are, this is what the life is of love and peace of a believer, looks like and We can like it or not like it, but this is what Paul is encouraging the Christians here in Rome. He tells them in verse 9, Love must be sincere, not insincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to that which is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if you can read that without feeling the prick of the Holy Spirit on your heart, then you're in a better place than I am. Uh, Because just reading those words pricks me to my heart. And without meddling (laughs) or getting off on a soapbox looking at what many Christians post on Facebook, do not echo these verses whatsoever. So I would imagine we might need to preach this text more often in our churches because we are not to be sucked in playing the game that the world plays. We are to be counterculture. And Christ is our example. Christ was falsely accused. The scripture says he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. He submitted to persecution and to ridicule and even death. But it was through his obedience to the Father, and it was even through his death that victory came to him. And Paul makes it perfectly clear. We are to live different than this world. We are not to play their game. We are not to fit in. In fact, what what, what people expect us to do, we should do the opposite of that. So he calls us to a radical transformation of, belief, of, of beliefs and behavior when he says this. He says, but this is the fruit of a transformed mind. This is the fruit when you look at the mercies of God. Because so if it wasn't for God's grace and mercy, you'd be on the other side of this. This is what a life submitted to the love of Jesus looks like. So he writes with great fervor and things I think that we can take to heart if we want to be God's people in the world and not play the game that the world plays. So that's our relationship to, to one another and to those as, as human beings. And it's centered on love. It's centered on esteeming one another better. It's It's being prayerful. It's being hospitable to one another. It's not... Repaying anyone evil for evil. It's not trying to go out and get revenge. It's not trying to to curse others. But it's living at peace and showing the love and the mercy that God has showed us to, to others that we want to experience. We want them to experience the love and the mercy of God. So that's living in the confines of human relationships. But he ends this with, you know, obviously not repaying anyone evil for evil. Do what is right in the eyes of every man. If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. Then he says here, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, "Do uh, uh, vengeance is mine; I will repay," says the Lord. Now, how does that happen? What does he mean there? Well, that's when he takes us into chapter 13, which over time has been a controversial. Another small controversial passage of Scripture as it relates to how do God's people relate to those in authority? How does it relate to human governments? How does it relate to the state? How does it relate when Paul's writing to Rome and to Caesar? And these verses, again, context, 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 context. You take verses out of context and you can make them say anything. These verses have been used by by bad governments in the past to say, hey, well, the Bible says you're supposed to admit and do everything the government says and not question and have blind allegiance. And, and so it's been used in many, many different ways. But we want to set it right here in the context. The context right before is what we just read is how we relate to, to one another in, in love, in nonviolence and not retaliation. But it says that God, but leave room for God's wrath. Or vengeance is his. Or what is God's wrath? That's an interesting term, but it may not, use, may not be used here the way we think God's wrath, you know, or God sending a lightning bolt burning his enemies, or God causing bad things to happen, or causing a whole city to fall into the ground. You know, we get pictures of that, but chapter 13 tells us what God's wrath is. God's wrath against those who would do evil. God's wrath against those who would do injustice. God's wrath against those who would hurt other people that would be the authorities of government that God has set in place over all the earth um, and throughout all time. Now, certainly Rome was a wicked and unjust place. When Paul's writing here is probably not as bad as it's going to get for the Christians. Um, Paul writes probably early on in Nero's reign uh, when Nero, when, when there was a time of peace with the Christians there, it would not be many years for things would go very sour and very bad uh, for the Christians in Rome. But Rome was still had a, you know, a lot of immorality, a lot of injustice. But even though Rome's wickedness and evil and human governments have human error, government serves a God-ordained purpose. And because they serve a God-ordained purpose of having a form of justice, in the world. Um, And Christians should be subject to their authority, as we're going to see. Now, Romans 13, 1 through 7 uh, is, in fact, a general statement about ruling authorities and governments. Governments, ruling authorities, something God has put in place to preserve some measure of justice and some measure of order and to prevent the world from falling into complete and utter anarchy and chaos. So Paul here he's going to make a general statement about government and and the good and the purpose that God has ordained it. So he's saying it's not up for us as individuals to take vengeance. It's not up for us as individuals to take revenge out on people, but leave that for God's justice. Leave that for God's wrath. What does that look like? Well, chapter 13 tells us what that looks like. So chapter 13, verse 1, let's read the first seven verses, then we'll go back and I'll show you three things that I think is kind of the heart of this he says, "Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. Now that begs the question and we could discuss all day. what does that mean? Does that mean in general that God has set forth human government to let it run its course or does that mean that God has that God selects every single leader that is ever been and will ever be to lead the country? Um, you can take sovereignty to you know extreme parts, but Most people see this as a general. God has established governments as a human way to provide justice for the world. And there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So there's a judgment word, not in the form of divine judgment, as in god actively but through the governing authorities for rulers hold no terror to those who do right so we see he's making a general statement about governments who should govern well but for those who do wrong do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority then do what is right and you will be commended for the one in authority is god's servant for your good But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment upon the wrongdoer. So that's the definition of God's wrath back in chapter 12. God's wrath and how he gets vengeance on those who do not do good is through the human governing authorities that God puts. So if you do good and obey the laws, you will be treated good. If you don't, then you will be brought under this God's servant who brings wrath to those who do wrong. He says, Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So you can see how you can easily use these verses to promote an agenda or to make them say something, but there's three points that I see in this passage of Scripture. First of all, Paul is speaking of governing as a general statement, that as a general principle, governments should bring justice upon those who do wrong, who do injustice, who hurt other people. And if you do good then you have no fear of them, but if you're a wrongdoer, then you'll be punished. You'll be put in jail. The sentence will be passed, and God ordained that for the world to have governments to keep order and to keep justice and peace. So the first thing that I see is a general statement about governing is something God's put into place to preserve the measure of justice and order, and as Christians, we are to submit to that. We are to obey the law. We are to pay our taxes. We are to be good citizens. So, the first, I think Paul's making a general statement. Number two, I think Paul is guarding against anarchy from some Christians who see it as their duty because Jesus is Lord and we worship him. We don't worship Caesar as Lord. Therefore, some well meaning Christians might say, well, We need to overthrow the government because Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So we're not going to pay taxes. We're not going to do what the government says. We're not going to do what Caesar says. We're going to cause a rebellion and we're going to show them that they're not, they don't have authority over us. Only God does, which that has happened from time to time. So uh, Christians in Rome at this time were not the most well-liked people, but again, they were not under severe persecution but they must not get a reputation as troublemakers for no reason. Um, Christianity is a revolutionary idea and a revolutionary community, but again, revolutionary in the fact that we're not like the world around us. Where other people seek vengeance and revenge, we don't. We pray for our enemies. Where other people try to hurt us and kill us, we feed and offer drink to those who are against us. We bless and not curse. We don't try to seek vengeance or retaliation. That's the revolutionary concept that Paul gives us in chapter 12. So we are indeed a revolutionary community, but not the type of normal revolutionary community that you would expect, a violent retribution or paying the empire back or trying to be uh, anti-government or anti, or being an anarchist sect of society. That's not what we're supposed to be. In fact, one writer, N.T. Wright, uh, says he has made it clear that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. But what Wright proposes is that all of this could have led many Christians into a sort of over-realized anarchy in which Christians try to overthrow the government in the name of Christ. Uh, he points to riots under Claudius and Jewish revolutionaries uh, who attempted to overthrow governments as example of actions of early Christians that we should not emulate So there were those that tried, you know, insurrections and to overthrow the governments, but he's saying that's not who we are. Right, Maccabees and a lot of Jewish revolts. So that's not who we are. We are as Christians, good citizens, peacemakers, submitted to the government, paying our taxes, showing love and peace as the people of God. So I believe Paul writes this as a general statement about what government is and why we should be submitted to it, encouraging the Christians, you're not anarchists, you're not to to go and be this type of revolutionary community of violence. And three, one thing he doesn't really address is obviously the question that comes up here. What about bad governments? Because that's going to happen. What about governments that would try to get us to do things that God commands us not to do, or to go against the values and the principles of God? Well, Paul doesn't address that here. That's not his point. But obviously, that's the question that comes up. What about wicked authoritarians and bad governments? As I said, I think this goes back to a general statement about government, um, But it's not writing a blank check to governments or telling Christians that they should obey no matter what. And we see that. You read the book of Acts. There was many times the the temple officials told the disciples, do not preach or teach in his name. What did they go out and do? They preached and taught in his name. But then you know what happened? They got arrested. And you know what they did? They sat in prison. So even though they didn't obey the government when it came down to do we please God or do we please man, do we obey God or do we obey man, we always obey God. But you can obey God and not government and at the same time submit to government. Because there are many Christians that are imprisoned for their faith, that are executed for their faith. And they submit to that Okay, I will submit to being arrested if that's what the government says, but I will obey God. So, you know, I think we're not to go out to be anarchists or try to provoke things, but we are to stand for our faith, and we ought to obey God rather than man when man when man-made government contradicts the word of God, but also to submit to that authority if persecution comes and the scriptures give those examples. So, uh, Christians who refuse to worship Caesar still permit Caesar to punish. And that is being in subordination to the government without obeying in everything. But that's not Paul's point here. We can discuss that all day long. And that's not his point. His point is this is what the community of faith looks like in love, in peacemaking, and in, and in government, in life as a citizen. And all of this, again, is love is the linchpin. Look in verse number 8 of chapter 13. Let no debt remain. Remember, he says, you know, whatever you owe, pay it. But he says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law. And then he goes back to appeal to his Jewish people. And he says, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, covet, uh, whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command which Jesus speaks about is concerning the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. He goes on to encourage them to be people of light in this dark world as, our salvation, as their salvation approaches. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus. Um, so he begins that chapter or Romans chapter twelve, transforming your mind, not thinking like the world. Here's how the covenant, or here's how the community of believers think. They act in love. They submit to one another. They don't retaliate. They submit to the government. They be good, peaceful citizens. And the whole linchpin is love. The whole linchpin is love. Now he goes to verse chapter fourteen, and this is um, the burning issue between Jew and Gentile as it relates to some of their corals. You had those who and the, the, chapter 14 really comes down to two different dynamics. What you eat is first of all and what sacred days you keep. So obviously there's a conflict here within the community of faith over what you eat. Cuz again the Jewish people come from a Jewish culture, they had Jewish laws, they didn't eat certain things. Gentiles they could eat whatever And then, of course, you had some Jews that became Christians, and they were free from their previous dietary laws. Some still held to those convictions. Uh, Some still kept certain Sabbath days and holy days. Others, Gentiles, didn't keep certain Sabbath days and certain holy days, and they didn't feel uh, compelled to do that. So how do we get along with one another when we have differing uh, convictions? And basically, here's what he says. If you have a conviction, hold your conviction to yourself and keep your conviction and don't compromise your conviction. But at the same time, don't force your conviction upon everybody else when God doesn't force that upon everybody else. And don't look down on others because they don't do your conviction. On the other side, they're supposed to do the same thing, they have their own convictions they're to live those convictions. They're not to force those upon others, and they're not to judge those that do things differently when God doesn't. So in chapter 14, again, he's dealing with dietary laws, what you eat, and with holy days. So let's, let's read some in chapter 14. He begins, and this is, this is the key to all of it. The key to the, what we previously read was love. Here's what it looks like to love in view of God's mercy. Verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1, Accept one another. Accept the one who's weak in faith without quarreling or having disputable matters. And then he says, one person's faith allows him to eat anything. But another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt. The one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. He's saying, if this is your conviction upon what you eat, have your conviction. God accepts you because you're not accepted anyway by what you eat. He says, if this is your faith, this is what you don't eat, don't eat it. And God accepts you because you're not rejected by what you don't eat. So he's telling them to accept. Then he says in verse number um, five, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. That's great. Whoever eats, meat, um, whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God for their meat. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies to ourselves alone. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he may be Lord of both, the living and dead. So why then do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. We will all stand there to give an account for our own lives. He says in verse 13, So let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make your mind Make up your mind not to put a stumbling block in the way of your brother. And here's what he says, and this is how he talks to both sides. He says, yes, you are free to eat whatever you want to eat. You give thanks for it. You eat it. You're free to do that. If you don't want to eat, you don't have to eat certain things. You're free to do that. God is fine with it. If you keep special holy days, that's great. Keep it unto the Lord. God accepts you if you don't. God still accepts you because it's not about eating and drinking. It's not about feast days or Sabbath days or it's not about any of that anymore. It's about faith in Christ. If you have faith in Christ, you're accepted by Christ, period. He says, so yes, you have freedom, but here's the key. Don't flaunt your freedom in the face of those who don't hold those beliefs. Don't force those things on others who don't hold their beliefs. That would be putting a stumbling block." in the way of your brothers. So while you have freedom, don't use your freedom to cause other brothers who God accepts to stumble or to think they're less than, or to think they are not accepted. If you have the freedom to do something, but you're in the presence of a brother or sister and they don't, he says, use that freedom to not offend your brother or sister. Use that freedom not to offend them. So he says, right, he says, um, in verse number seventeen, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He says in verse nineteen, but let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace. Again, we should be peacemakers. I shouldn't go up and look at your plate and says, "How come you're not eating this? You, you, you don't, don't you know you're free to eat that? Why are you still under bondage? No, because they hold a conviction in their own mind. They shouldn't." come over to my plate and do the same thing. Because personal convictions are personal convictions. We have to be careful not to make our personal convictions eternal law for everybody else. But at the same time, we should not have a a contemptible or haughty attitude toward those who do it different than we do. Because the Lord is the same master of both of us. So make every effort to do what leads to peace. He says in verse 19, into mutual edification, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. For it's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because their eating is not From faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So have your faith between yourself and God. But when you're coming together in a body, be be conscious of those there that you don't put a stumbling block in front of them. So that's how he's telling others to get along in this this body of believers. When we go into chapter fifteen, he's uh, still continuing the message and says in verse one. We who are strong are to bear the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Each one should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. Uh, For it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen upon me. For everything that is written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught through Scripture and the encouragement uh, they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward one another that Christ had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 17, he says, Accept one another, then just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And that's the linchpin of that. Accept one another. Despite your differences, despite your different convictions, despite your different menus and the different holy days you keep, Christ has accepted both because the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking or holy days or these things. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And those three things should define the life of the believer. And then he goes on to quote some Old Testament scriptures about the Gentiles glorifying God, because again, he's going back to the Gentiles are included. Um, In chapter 15, verses 14 through 21 or, or 22, he's Paul is going back to his personal mission as an apostle. Um, He says in verse number 16 that God gave him to be the minister of Christ to the Gentiles. He gave me this priestly duty proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering unto God. So he's turning to his uh, own role in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's part of accepting one another. God accepts the Gentiles. You should accept the Gentiles. God accepts the Jews who come to faith. You should accept the Jews who come in faith. Um, In verses 23 through 33, uh, Paul is looking forward to coming to Rome, so uh, he's laying out his own plans to come to Rome. Then in chapter 16 uh, is some concluding remarks and concluding matters. The conclusion to the letter begins with a commendation to its bearer Phoebe in verses 1 and 2. Uh, then through verses 3 through 16 is followed in turn by greetings to other friends who are in Rome. And then he gives a final exhortation in verse number 17. So if you look in Romans sixteen seventeen, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving the Lord uh, Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard of your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. So he's giving them, you know, a being cautious about others that would come in, that would try to lead them astray from what Paul has told them in this letter, like what we see happen in the book of Galatians and, and in other places where people are trying to lead them astray. So he gives an exhortation there. Um, in verses 21 through 24, he gives some final greetings there. And then in verses 25 through 27, he ends with a doxology. So he says in Romans 16:25, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden from ages long ago, but now is made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, So that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So he ends again with this, one of the sole purposes of writing this, to say the Gentiles are included. And because the Gentiles are included, you're to accept one another. You're to live at peace with one another. You are to not judge and condemn one another. You are to live as good citizens together, showing that you're a peaceful people who does not go out and seek retribution or revenge or or violence, but you're supposed to be contrary to that. You're supposed to love your enemies and bless and not curse and and do good to others and pray for one another and, and love one another. Why? Because you have a transformed mind because you're different. You are led by the Spirit. And people that are led by the Spirit have their minds set on the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God leads them because their old man has been buried with Christ in his death. And you've been raised to walk in the newness of life. And because of that, there is no more condemnation in Christ, in, in Christ Jesus. You've been set free from condemnation. And you've been set free from condemnation because of God's gift of grace which was made available to every person, Jew and Gentile, for there is no difference because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Abraham shows us that we are justified through faith apart from the works of the law. Therefore, without the law, righteousness is revealed. So don't try to gain righteousness through keeping the law because in trying to keep the law, you find yourself condemned because you can't keep it. And for those out in the world who are under idolatry, And who are showing forth all manner of of evil and sinful desires. And you're being held captive by that. That is not God's will. It's being brought under the judgment of sin. And Christ came to redeem you from that. Because the gospel, the gospel is God's righteousness to all who believe. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's to Jew and to Gentile. And that's why he's ready to come to Rome to preach the gospel, and he's eager to come to Rome because he's heard about their faith and he wants to exhort them to be the people of God, Jew and Gentile, accepting together and living together as people who are under the righteousness of God. And that's the message of the book of Romans. It brings us and it ties together this issue of the righteousness of God being given to both Jew and Gentile together that you may be the people of God shining as lights in this world.